Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we remember a friend of Access Utah, the writer Jeff Metcalf, who died this summer. I had the privilege of interviewing him several times on the show. He was unfailingly warm, witty, open, funny, profound. Jeff Metcalf taught at the University of Utah. He was a recipient of many awards for his writing, and he was the director of a nonprofit dedicated to granting underserved populations access to higher education. His books include Requiem for the Living, Backcast, and Waco City of Fun Carnival. He's also the author of a play called A Slight Discomfort. In much of his work, he confronted his battle with prostate cancer. The decisions about his health, the dark humor surrounding the serious situation, his emotions, his family, his determination in the face of death. We'll miss him, and we honor him uh, today. We're going to hear excerpts from uh, three of my interviews with Jeff uh, Metcalf, uh, dealing with the, the three books that I mentioned. And uh, I want to begin with a brief obituary. This is found in the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, by the way, you can find out more about Jeff Metcalf at his website, uh, which is wjmetcalf.com. Uh, here's that obituary. W. Jeff Metcalf, born... Uh, October 31st, 1949, died uh, June 11th, 2020. Writing an obituary for Jeff Metcalf has been a daunting task, not only because it would take the entire paper to properly notate uh, his many achievements and accolades as professor, writer, playwright, and humanitarian, but also because for someone who had such a brilliant command of the written word, ironically words themselves fall short when it comes to Jeff's larger-than-life presence. With equal parts charisma, authenticity, diabolical humor, and sincere conviction, people naturally gravitated toward him. His ability to connect with, inspire, and unite people from all walks of life made Jeff the rarest of breeds. The enthusiasm with which he lived life was contagious. Anything felt possible when Jeff was in the room. Jeff was a true Renaissance man. He shared his gift with the world. He listened and learned from others. He was a catalyst of change, a challenger of the status quo, an educator, a story weaver, a captain of adventure and mischief, the fish whisperer, chef calf, a husband and a father, Grandpop the Great, a mentor, a friend, an inspiration to all that knew him. In life, he was a force to be reckoned with, and it's hard to imagine a world without him. However, we can all keep a spark of Metcalf's magic alive by emulating what he represented. Give, listen, learn, unite, question, inspire, love and laugh. And when in doubt, just ask WWJD, what would Jeff do? That's a very appropriate obituary on the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, we're going to start with a couple of excerpts from my interview from 2014. Uh, that's when uh, his book Requiem for the Living came out. Uh, here is uh, how the publisher describes the book in brief. After nine years of keeping his prostate cancer at bay, the clinical trials and cancer drugs lost their effectiveness. Instead of withdrawing from the world, Jeff Metcalf chose a, uh, to dive deeper into writing, challenging himself to write one essay each week for a year. And that collection of 52 essays was chosen by the Utah Division of Arts and Museums as the winner of their 2012 original writing competition, Requiem for the Living contains the best of these essays selected and reworked by the author, who at that time continued to defy his earlier diagnosis. And uh, so here's a part of my interview from 2014 with uh, Jeff Metcalf. I wonder if uh, immediately I'd hopefully have your book with you. I do. And uh, I would love for you to, uh, as we start here, uh, just uh, read me uh, the first page. 
I and, would be happy to. And uh, it's it's a chapter called The Killing Fields. First page and then over the, the to complete the paragraph, the second page. I'm hell-bent on writing an essay for a year. It's straightforward enough, and I need this sort of dis- discipline right now. I'm dealing with an aggressive form of prostate cancer, and the drugs I've been administered over the past nine years have lost their potency. They've done a good job of keeping the cancer cells at bay, but the rodeo is over. In the course of the nine years since my diagnosis, I've been cut open, had my prostate removed, discovered that the cancer cells had spilled outside the margin, spent eight weeks in radiation, and when that procedure wasn't successful, I began a series of Lupron injections backed up with Cassidex Kicker and Zytiga. Lupron floods my body with female hormones, which suppress the development of testosterone, a necessary component for the cancer cells to survive. My effects have been hot flashes, loss of muscle tone, decreased libido, depression, loss of body hair, mood swings, frequent insomnia, and the retention of water. Essentially, my body has no idea what it is or how to act, and it's confusing. It's also funny, and humor counts against cancer, trust me. My blood draws have become increasingly more frequent because my PSA continues to rise. The climate has changed. There's less small chat, something I've always enjoyed on my frequent visits to the hospital. I've known these nurses and doctors for several years now. What they don't want to say is this. You have more time behind you than you do in front of you. I know this, and I understand it very well. I also know what comes next. There are a few medical choices for me, but none of them are pleasant. So you get the word uh, the, 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 uh, the drugs have been working. Now you get the word they're not working anymore. Um, yes. uh, what's, what are the emotions? I can imagine scared witless. I can imagine myself in that, in that position. What, what are their emotions? Well, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've been down this road when I was diagnosed some 10 years ago. Um, I had sort of a, I think it was a 30% chance of making it three years. And I thought to myself, well, this just doesn't work for me. I'm busy, and I love being above ground. So I've become this vociferous advocate in the health system for my own health. Um, I'm always, you know, I just saw the doctor about four weeks ago, and my numbers have gone up again, and, and uh, I'm back on another protocol. And I think after this after 10 years of sort of dealing with this, you know, I'm, I'm still at a loss for words. I think the thing is to get up every single day and, and make those days count for you. Am I afraid? Of course I am. Um, but, you know, none of us really knows how this rodeo is going to turn out. So I, I plan on staying in the game as long as I possibly can. So you're, it, it sounds like you just said no. Uh, yeah. Not yet. No, I, I agree. It's, I, I know that sounds crazy, but I think part of you know the fact that I've been able to survive this is I'm just a stubborn little Irishman. I'm sorry, this doesn't work for me. Not now. I'll know when I'm ready. Hmm. Now, of course, uh, sometimes that wouldn't work. Uh, I agree. Other people have, have had that attitude. It didn't, didn't work for them. Um, but I, I imagine, I guess you would say to, to other people facing this that uh, it, it's a good attitude to have? Absolutely. You know, here's the thing. I, I uh, you know, it's the glass is either half full or half empty, and for me, it's always been half full. 
And, you know, I, I know men who were diagnosed at the same time I was, um, and their numbers were actually better, and uh, two of them passed away in the last month. And I, I can't help but think, you know, mental attitude has a lot to do with it. And I think there's some science behind this. Hmm. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that half-full glass, and uh, I continue to do so throughout this uh, entire journey. It was, I was interested to read, and you just said it uh, briefly here, uh, you have to be assertive battling the system. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your battles with healthcare system. In fact, you you fired your doctor, or at least you came to a parting of the ways. Yeah, this is, <laughs> that's a very nice way to say it. I think, um, you know, when I started on this thing, I, I think it was like every other person in this system, you know, you you hear this diagnosis and you think, oh, my God, I've got, you know, two years, maybe three years to live. And then I thought, who makes up the rules here? And, uh, you know, when this, this, is, this is actually also in the play, but there was a scene where a doctor came in who was filling in for another doctor and said, good morning, Mr. Metcalf. You know, my name is Dr. X, and you have 30% chance of making it two years. And I just went, I went over the top, and I said, who, who do you think you're talking to, you know? And get my name right. My first name is actually William, but I don't go by that. So oftentimes, Tom, when I'm, you know, sitting in a, in a hospital waiting room and they call William Metcalf, I'm looking around to see where this guy is, and then realize they're talking about me. And I said, go outside this room, knock on the door, and get my name right, and let's start from there. <laughs> and so we had quite a discourse, and uh, he, you know, told me that he was in fact the doctor and uh, practiced medicine. I told him, in fact, I was a person who was the patient and wanted to live as long as I possibly could, so we sort of parted ways. <laughs> and uh, there's some great doctors, and the Huntsman Cancer Center is a terrific place to be. So I've got terrific doctors there, but I have pushed the buttons and pushed the boundaries on this, and I highly recommend it. It's almost a full-time job um, to make your way through the medical system, the labyrinth of you know, insurance protocols uh, that seem to work oftentimes more in favor of insurance companies than they do with the patient. Hmm. I I just imagine the doctors seeing you coming, you know. We, 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 got, <laughs> we, got, we got Metcalf coming today. That's um, exactly what happened. Yeah. I had to push for this particular procedure and, uh, and then had to go in front of the tumor board and argue the case. And I had done my homework and... Uh, then they approved it. I had to go through the insurance company to get this particular operation that was a very delicate operation um, approved on insurance. And then they said the difficulty, of course, we'll find the doctor. Well, it just so happened that the doctor that pioneered this technology uh, is from Salt Lake. And I, I made an appointment with him. And as he came in the office early in the morning, I said, I'm Jeff Metcalf. And he said, I know who you are. And I said, oh, is that good or bad? And he just started laughing. He said, no, no, I, we, we know who you are. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, mm, this is a, I've got this reputation, but um, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. So assertiveness, and, and you you, you got to take control of, of your own health care. Uh, also humor. You mentioned humor is important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the interesting thing was when I, I've kept journals for years, and when I was diagnosed, I decided that cancer didn't belong in the personal journeys that were full of ideas for short stories and plays and reflections on my teaching life and, you know, great restaurants. It's always about food for me. And uh, so I kept a sep separate journal for um, 
my notes on cancer. And uh, I, you know, listen, I got to tell you something. Men don't talk to each other. You know, women get it a lot sooner than men. They know how to talk to each other. And I didn't tell my wife that I was diagnosed, um, which was one of the greatest mistakes of my married life. And trust me, there have been many. And uh, so I kept this journal. And, uh, you know, it was pretty dark. But then I'd see these just sort of moments of light and humor, I thought, I think I have something there. I was thinking about, you know, things as simple as, you know, the the medical robes that you put on when you're in a hospital. I don't care how you tie them. Certain parts of your anatomy always hang out. And And I thought, you know, if I could design a gown that could close properly, I could retire from teaching and make a million dollars. So anyway, this became sort of this thing where I looked for humor in it. And at the end of it, you know, I thought, I think I have at least a couple of short stories from this, which ultimately turned into the play A Slight Discomfort. We are honoring and remembering the writer Jeff Metcalf on the program today. He died uh, this summer. Uh, and we're hearing excerpts from several of uh, the interviews I did with Jeff Metcalf on this program. I had the privilege of interviewing him at least three times uh, on the occasion of uh, publication of uh, his books. And right now we are hearing some excerpts from an interview about his uh, book, Requiem for the Living. Uh, Before we go to the next excerpt uh, from this interview from 2014, he mentioned there his play. I wanted to... uh, to uh, read you the description of the play from Salt Lake Acting Company. This is where the play premiered. Um, And uh, so here's how they describe uh, A Slight Discomfort, his play. A funny, touching, warm, informative, frank, inspiring, and entertaining play about prostate cancer? That's right, an amazing play about prostate cancer. Award-winning playwright Jeff Metcalf has written a remarkably honest and outrageously funny play about his experience with prostate cancer. This one-man play, based on his journals, follows Jeff's journey from diagnosis through his life uh, surviving the disease. I'm here because of closet space, ritual, and humor, says Metcalf. A slight discomfort is about living, really living. It explores the shared experience of being human and dealing with a crisis with grace and humor. A slight discomfort takes us from laughter to tears, from blushing to bravo, from thought to action, from tragedy to triumph. And uh, so that's uh, a little description of his play, which has been performed in uh, several cities around the world, uh, other than, uh, of course, premiere in Salt Lake City. Let's hear another excerpt from my interview on the occasion of Requiem for the Living. And you recall that... uh, uh, after about nine or ten years of dealing with prostate cancer, Jeff Metcalf chose uh, to write one essay each week for a year. And that collection turned into Requiem for the Living. In this uh, excerpt from that interview, uh, he, he talks directly about death. Uh, so uh, before I have you read this passage about sitting in the audience, uh, experiencing your play with the audience, talking about death as well there, you, you take it head on, there's some humor there. Uh, why why this, this task? Where did this come from? Write an essay a week for a year. Boy, that's a good question, and if I, if I could answer that. <laughs> Here's the thing. I've, I've been involved in, in writers' conferences and teaching writing for years, and I... You know, I just talk about staying in the room and writing the most difficult things, the things closest to the bone. And I thought, you know, it was really, you know, I kind of feel the press of time. And, and in many ways, I think that is a gift that has made me really focus in the last few years and sort of prioritize what I want to try to get written. Um, 
with the time that I have left. And uh, so I, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd love to try something out. I'm, I'm going to ch- challenge myself to write an essay a week, which is absolutely insane. You know, if you've got four essays published at any university, you'd probably become the department chair. And so I wrote 52 essays, and all of them, the only requirement I had for myself was to to follow my instinct and write whatever came into my mind. And so, the you know, the first essay might have been from 1963, followed by an essay in 1999, followed by an essay. So it made no sense when I was done. Um, but I thought maybe I had something. So I submitted it to the Utah Arts Council original uh, writing competition, and I actually won the first place prize for it. And I'm not sure they were reading the same book, but <laughs> when I looked at the judges' notes, I thought, wow, you know, maybe I have something here. And then the U Press agreed to publish it. But since then, you know, I dropped a number of the essays and then reshaped them in sort of um, a series of suites, very much like a musical score. Hmm. What, what did you learn? You, it's interesting, I, near the back of the book, <clears throat> you talk about uh, you're interested in what you left out. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a great question. I mean, I've, I have had an absolutely marvelous life. And, you know, I, w- I was very surprised in sort of when I was done with this project. I took a couple of weeks off and, and just fished to get back in the seam. And I thought, you know, how did these essays, I mean, what was the river's teeth of these essays that made me write them? And how did I miss things, you know, or not spend much time with the exception of two essays on my teaching career, which has been my love. I've been at this 40-some-odd years, which is which is actually longer than some of the countries that are in existence now. And uh, so I, I have no idea. I was I was sort of puzzled by it. I didn't write much about being with the circus. I didn't write, you know, much about education. I, I, I seem to have really protected my family in many ways. So I think that maybe, you know, and I'd, I'd like to do another collection of essays um, that sort of pick up some of these things. And I thought maybe the reason I didn't get there, because, you know, education for me, I was one of the founders of an alternative school here in my 20s, and I think that perhaps those things are separate books. Hmm. I wonder if I could have you uh, read this this path, this, this uh, page uh, 225, uh, and maybe begin with uh, the poem over on uh, the bottom of 224. Yes. Um, uh, and you all know... Um, Ken Brewer, who's a former Utah Poet Laureate, who was on the faculty at Utah State. And we were very good friends, and uh, when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, uh, we corresponded back and forth, and I was he knew I had, had, um, had cancer, and I was, you know, talking to him about the idea of death, because he wrote this amazing poem called The Visit. And I'd like to read that first, um, Death sits on the side of my bed, skirt hiked to the hairline, says, Hi, handsome, dance with me? No thanks, I say, not yet. I'm just a man with pancreatic cancer, not a corpse. Besides, I'm married. Death stands and straightens his skirt. I'll be back, marriage or not. So I took Ken's advice and stuck death into the one-man play of slight discomfort that I'd been commissioned to write for the Salt Lake Acting Company. 
That way, I could keep my eye on the dream. The play is about my journey through cancer, and it's extremely difficult for me to watch. I see myself on stage struggling with my own mortality while battling himself as much as he does the cancer. I see a man who has attempted to shield his family from the inevitable, and in doing so has done just the opposite. But it's just a play, and it ends on a positive and hopeful note. But I know the truth, and I still conceal it from my family and myself. The play no longer belongs to me. Deva's character works. It always draws an uncomfortable laugh from the audience in its first appearance. But by the second appearance, toward the end of the play, the audience is at full attention. They are present and inside the play, translating this moment in the theater into a personal and familiar narrative of their own experience. My character, the onstage Jeff, has become somebody close to them. The play is no longer about prostate cancer. It's about the human condition, about wanting to be treated with dignity and respect. We are not alone. We are not alone. Therein, I believe, lies the success of the play. Everybody leaves the theater, the package is tidied up, and we go home wanting to love what is close to us. No matter in what city we perform the play, I stay after the curtain drops and the crowd leaves. I wait until the lights in the house are turned off just to make certain there are no shadows about. I turn my back on death without looking at my card, and I can't be so reckless again. It's just a matter of time. Mm. So I think a, a person like yourself, uh, who uh, I suppose has to, has to think about death in a more concrete way than a lot of us, um, I don't know if you see things differently. You see it more up close. We we don't like thinking about death. I think. I agree. I think I think one becomes uh, oh heightened to the sense of time. Um, no, you're right. I mean, none of us knows that you know what will happen. I yeah. Now, there's an essay in there called Split Second, where I was driving back from a fishing trip talking with his friend after having some sort of bad news about, you know, my numbers, and two deer jumped on the freeway, and uh, somehow I was able to split in between them, and I was thinking it could have ended right there. I mean, had we hit either one of the deer, um, our car would have rolled down a berm, and who knows what would have happened. So I'm attentive, and death as a character was very, very interesting to me. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're hearing excerpts from uh, my several interviews on this program with the writer Jeff Metcalf, uh, who died this summer. We're honoring him, remembering him on the program uh, today with the excerpts uh, from these interviews. Uh, and we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll hear a couple of excerpts from my interview from 2018 on the occasion of the publication of his book, uh, Backcast. Um, and the subtitle is Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters. We'll, we'll have more following this break. The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. Committed to quality teaching, outreach, and research. 
offering services to the community and providing students with real-world service and research opportunities. Information at cehs.usu.edu. Leadership Matters is the theme of the second day of the Democratic National Convention. Here's Senator Bernie Sanders making the case. I know that Joe Biden will begin that fight on day one. Live coverage of the DNC tonight with recaps and analysis tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tune in for coverage at the Democratic National Convention this evening at 7 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're remembering a friend of Access Utah, the writer Jeff Metcalf, who died this summer. Uh, His books include Requiem for the Living and Wacko City of Fun Carnival. He's also the author of a play, A Slight Discomfort. And in much of his uh, work, he confronted his battle with prostate cancer. He's unfailingly warm, witty, open, funny, and uh, profound. We honor him uh, today. We'll hear next a couple of excerpts from my interview from 2018. That's uh, the release of his book, the year that his book is released, Backcast. Uh, It's about fly fishing and uh, much, much more. Um, He says that uh, these waters have been my home, and I fish them more than most. In truth, they have saved my life on more than a few occasions. I seek refuge in the quiet solitude of rivers. In the dark hours of my life, including this particular year, I need desperately to be fly fishing. In this book, he also talks about uh, his volunteering efforts with Real Recovery, an organization that conducts retreats for men living with uh, cancer. Uh, In this first excerpt from my 2018 interview with Jeff Metcalf, uh, we talk about how he got into fly fishing, and uh, that has a connection with uh, Utah State University. One of your essays is set in the uh, the high-rise dorms here. Yeah, the high-rise dorms. Uh, Actually, it's one of my favorite essays because it kind of explains how I got into fly fishing. I was not at all interested in fly fishing. I'd grown up living all around the world and actually lived in the Middle East and used to uh, uh, do a lot of fishing there um, and catching big fish. So the idea of you know going up the canyon and catching a one-pound trout worthy of some great stories seemed rather humorous to me when that would have been bait for some of the fish that I caught. And it was it was an accident. I was in a card game in the high rise. For some reason, I think it was the second and third year of the high rise, they put all the troublemakers on the seventh floor, and that was a big mistake. <laughs> so we ran some poker clinics, and I ended up in a card game and um, had four legitimate aces against a particular gentleman that I was not fond of from the East Coast. And, uh, you know, he couldn't match the pot. So he said, well, what what can I put up? I mean, if you couldn't pay, you couldn't play. <laughs> and he said, well, I've got some, uh, i got a fly rod, some waders, uh, duck decoys, 24 duck decoys, an over-under shotgun. It was a big pot in the day. It was like $250, and there was a lot on the table. And everybody said, you got to bring that in. Is that okay with you, Matt Kaff? And I said, sure, the more the merrier, because there was no way conceivably that he could have beat me. And when I turned the four, he kept asking me, what do you have? What do you have? And I said, I have four aces. And, you know, that was preposterous. And then when I turned my hand over and, and fanned out the aces, he he came across the table at me and, and was quickly sucker punched by 
somebody else at the table that didn't like him. And I kept those, Tom, I kept those waiters stored for, oh, the longest period of time. And he was, he was a basketball player, so the waiters came up around my neck, or it seemed like it. And when I finally went fly fishing, um, I put him on, stepped into the water in Logan Canyon, and uh, almost drowned, uh, and thought, okay, this is stupid. And, but uh, I hooked myself in the cheek, the ear, <laughs> and then the worst thing that possibly could have happened was on the final cast. I was going to make 10 more casts and get out of the water and throw the fly rod away. Uh, something impossible happened. I caught a fish, and it was, well, pretty much downhill from there. <laughs> oh, in fact, well, let me have you read that passage. Uh, you've, you've set it up nicely here. This is uh, page into uh, page 12, uh, into page uh, 13. And it, it sounds painful. I guess this is a hazard for new fly fishermen. You could, you could, you could, you could embed the hook into yourself. Well, listen, um, I had no, uh, nobody in my life that told me how to fly fish, and that was the day of barbed hooks. And, I mean, I was flailing at the sky, and, uh, you know, they were barbed, so they stuck in me, so I just ended up cutting them off and letting them hang in my cheek. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I'd be happy to read the passage. Before you do that, what was your plan? You, uh, have a day of fishing and then go, go see to get those out of your cheek? I, I had a plan of getting that out of my cheek, but I look like uh, the hunchback of Notre Dame. It looked like a bees attacked my face, and there was I was swollen. So I actually just took a very sharp knife when I got back to this cabin. I was staying out and made a little slit and popped them out. Wow. There's a much easier way to do that yeah. now. Um, so I've got a couple of scars, um, but they remind me. They remind me yeah, of that first yeah. day. Uh, and so uh, anyway. Yeah, so this passage. Yeah. Here. So the passage you're referring to is in a story called Hooked. I should have known what would happen next. The muse had warned me. The omens were already stuck in my face. It was the most horrible thing conceivable. I ganked the atoms, made two rather decent casts. My third cast landed on a bush lying the bank. It hung lightly on a branch, and the hook did not appear to be sunk into timber. So ever so delicately, I gave the line a twitch, and the fly alighted on the water. I didn't have time to appreciate the nuance, because instantly something silver slashed the fly and ripped into it. Here now is a sequence of what I think happened next. I screamed. I'm, I'm certain of this. I jerked my fly rod high above my head. I let go of all the line I had on in my left hand, created tremendous slack, and losing the tension on the fly, I stumbled on a rock as I stepped back in the river, lost my balance, and fell sideways in the water. I took a little water into my waders, and my heart was pumping. And when I managed to regain my footing, the fly line was spaghetti on the river, and more disappointingly, there wasn't any tension on the line. The fish was off the fly. I began reeling in the excess line when suddenly tugged and began moving upstream. The fish was still on the line. My God, I hadn't cocked it all up after all. I managed successfully to land a beautiful little rainbow trout, no more than 12 inches long. It was one of the smallest fish I'd ever landed in my life. But I can't begin to explain the sensation I felt at that moment. I figured something 
out, something important. I knew deep down that somehow the water would call me back and the river would remain forever in my life. So you were you were hooked, no pun intended. Oh um, man, I was yeah. hooked. I didn't realize what a disease it would become. I wonder, and this is a Jeff Metcalf. Jeff Metcalf. He's reading from his latest collection, Backcast: Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters. Um, so the the title, Backcast. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's interesting because um, when you begin to fly fish, um, I mean, there's a parallel to life too. That in the backcast, everything can quickly come unhinged if you're not wading the forward and the backcast equally which most men don't when they're learning. It's kind of pull a line off the water and then try to get it back on as fast as possible, and it's very measured. Um, you can get a bird's nest. You can hook branches and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, this is really appropriate for life. You know, you're kind of heading one way and not paying attention to every, anything behind you, and things can go south in a hurry. Mm. So it seemed like a pretty good title. And the editors thought it was fantastic. And then I tagged, that, tagged on the second part and other such matters because they're really no, they're not stories about fly fishing, although I guess in many ways it runs through it. But I think they're also lessons about life and about observation of the wild. Hmm. Before we get into that, I wanted to talk, keep it on uh, you know the on the nose with the with the fly fishing. Uh, by the way, you and uh, I imagine most people would learn fly fishing with a, a mentor, a buddy. You went out alone. I think so. You you, yeah. you tried to mimic the other <laughs> fellows on the river that day. Oh, oh. They were studiously yeah, ignoring well, you. It really looked bad. It's like throwing somebody on ice skates into the Stanley Cup that has never been on ice skates before. <laughs> That's how I felt. <laughs> you you and, survived it. Uh, you know, over the go ahead. You survived it. I survived it, and and uh, I had no idea how it would follow me around my entire life. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you. And would... I'm thankful for it. Uh, it's it's been a it's been a good influence, I think, in your life. Um... It has been. Um, I wonder if you'd now. Read... My wife would differ with <laughs> you on that. <laughs> Which, what would land. your it's cheaper than getting a girlfriend? Trust me. <laughs> what would your wife? What does your wife say about this? You know, it's wonderful. She understands it perfectly. I mean, we're big hikers and bikers, and and we spend a lot of time in the outdoors. And you know, I don't play golf. I don't disappear on business trips. I mean, the one thing. It's just kind of sacred, and, and she's always been very supportive of it, is fly fishing. And uh, there are days when I just go, I need to be on the water. And there are no questions asked. And uh, that's a special relationship. Hmm. I can't think of many people that can say that. So I want to ask you, what is it about fly fishing versus, say, quote unquote, regular fishing? There's there's a there's a, a very nice uh, story in the in the book. You and your grandfather, where he introduces you to, you know, the casting right. with the reel. Right. It's a you know it, it's interesting because I honestly think most of us that fly fish began by spin fishing. It's pretty easy to do, you know. Um, when I went fishing with my grandfather, it took me about five minutes to learn how, maybe more than that, to learn how to, you know, flip over the latch, cast the line out, flip it back over, let it lock, and then sort of reel it into the water. Um, what I like about fly fishing, 
um, it demands uh, a different kind of um, attention, attention to how a water is moving, the kinds of bugs that may and may not be on the water. It, it demands that one pays attention to the natural world. Rivers change. I mean, I've fished the Provo River for, oh, I'd say 50 years now, maybe more than that, maybe 51, 52 years in the same places. I, I like to believe I know that river as, as well as anybody else, but it's always in constant change and motion. And you have to be prepared for that. I mean, you know, I mean, fishing, fly fishing. People say, "How was fishing?" And my answer is always, "It was great." I think they're really asking how catching was. They're two very distinctly different questions. Mm. Fishing's always beautiful. You're in a place where you have to move up and down river, spot fish, be very stealth about it. Um, and that's not the case with spin fishing. I mean, you could stay in the same place, spin fish from a comfortable lawn chair and hardly move at all, but um, I feel like I'm part of the natural world when I fly fish. So it's, you know, if you take it as metaphor, it's it's the journey, then. The fishing it's is always good. It's the journey. Good. Yeah. Absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, I've had days that were freezing, where I knew I wouldn't catch a fish, didn't stand a chance, and that's still fine by me. You know, just being on the water, walking the water, studying what's going on, trying to imagine where fish are holding up. That's a perfect day for me. Mm. I wonder if you could read the, uh, you have a quotation at the beginning of the book. Um, oh, yes, and, yes, yes, yes. And you've, this, you've... this was, I'd be happy to read that for yeah. you. So this is the very beginning of the book, and I saw it in a friend's cabin many, many years ago, and it just, it seems so appropriate to begin the text with. So it's, it's called Sparse Gray Hackle. If fishing interferes with your business, give up your business, any angler will tell you, citing instances of men who lost health and even life through failure to take a little recreation and reminding you that the trout do not rise in the Greenwood Cemetery. So you better do your fishing where you're still able. But you will search far to find a fisherman to admit that a taste for fishing, like a taste for liquor, must be governed, lest it come to possess its possessor, that an excess of fishing can cause as many tragedy of lost purpose, earning power, and position as the excess of liquor. <laughs> I, think I think that's my prayer to the river every day. <laughs> it, it, can, it can become an obsession. We are remembering the writer Jeff Metcalf on Access Utah today. Thanks for listening. Had a privilege of interviewing him several times. He's uh, definitely a, a friend of the show. We honor him and remember him uh, today. And uh, we're hearing excerpts right now from an interview from 2018. That was the year his uh, book Backcast was released. Uh, the subtitle is Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters. Uh, Jeff Metcalf volunteered with Real Recovery. That's an organization that conducts retreats for men living with cancer. And he uh, said it's important for men to learn to talk about their cancers uh, and their lives. We're going to be talking a little bit about that in this next excerpt. So I want to uh, t talk about um, the, the first piece in the book here. The book is uh, Backcast. We're talking with Jeff Metcalf. Um, so, Jeff Metcalf, you uh, went up to, um, to, to Altamont to participate in the program thinking 
that you'd be a volunteer teaching people, uh, teaching these men to uh, to fly fish, and uh, found out instead you'd <laughs> they'd signed you up as a participant. Yeah, it was it was really strange because I, um, you know, my gosh, I've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, teaching people how to cast, and I thought, you know, this is the way I can give back. So I threw a bunch of waders into the car and a bunch of fly rods because I knew they were just starting out, and uh, I figured I'd be able to help out. And when I got there, I told them who I was and told them I had some fly rods and waders and that I was really excited to be doing this. And they kind of checked me in and said, you know, I think there's a, uh, uh, I think we have a problem here because we have you down as uh, a participant. And I said, you know, but I actually, I actually signed up to be God. God, <laughs> I said, I actually signed up to be a guide. And they counted stuff up and looked and said, well, that's, that's kind of going to foul stuff up because then we'll have more guides and participants. And uh, it also says that you have prostate cancer. And I said, well, I, well, I do, but um, I really would be happy to be a guide. And it's interesting because the guides like sleep up in the hills. And the participants get beautiful rooms inside this lodge. And they said, well, let us just show you where your room would be. So they took me upstairs in this beautiful, beautiful lodge, uh, Falcon, Falcon Ledge, and uh, showed me this room. And it was a suite overlooking this big, beautiful pond. And I saw a trout rise over by a dead tree. And I went, you know what? I think that'll be perfect. I'm I'm actually pretty sick, and I this makes a lot of sense to me. So I ended up being a participant. <laughs> but what really surprised me, Tom, was that I had not uh, planned on being so completely moved by that process. The sort of the way real recovery gets men to talk about themselves. Um, you know. We begin by uh, talking about um, the truths about our own cancer. Uh, and I thought, you know, this is kind of corny. Um, you know, began with, so tell us uh, what kind of car you really love, what you drove in high school. And that was easy for us all to do. And then finally he said, I'm going to invite all of you in these three days to share your truth about cancer. And the more you share this truth with others, the more freedom you will eventually have. And by the end of that morning session, I uh, I was glad I was there as a participant. The, you've, uh, this line really struck me. You say, silence in carrying the weight of our cancers had not served us well. It's talking about the, the men, men don't communicate. You know, it's well known in general. <laughs> men don't communicate as well as women. I, I wonder... Why that is? We're not socialized that way. We're guys. We're we're not far away from being, you know, uh, cavemen. You know, it's just a bit talking about our. I think there's some misnomer or misconception that by talking about uh, our health, we we are weaker for that. And I, you know, I thought about that as the day, the two days unfolded into the final day, and I was thinking, you know what, if I ever get a chance to talk about this, I'm going to talk about it. And it's really interesting, because when, you know, I told some men uh, who I played tennis with uh, that had prostate cancer, we'd always play tennis and then talk afterwards. One of them noticed that my, there was no hair on my legs. Well, I'd undergone radiation, and I was on a female hormone, 
He said, what are you doing, Metcalf? Shaving your legs now? And I, I just lied. I just said, uh, well, <laughs> uh, bike racing, citizens racing. I'm, I'm into bike racing right now. And I didn't say, yeah, I'm undergoing this. So the next time we got together, I mentioned it. Now, I've been playing tennis with these guys for 20-plus years, and three of them had had prostate cancer and had radical prostatectomies and never uttered a word. And I thought, that's it. You know, I've got to blow this trumpet and talk about this whenever I get a chance. So coincidentally, uh, I read a short piece at this uh, writer's series in Salt Lake um, called City Art, where they invite sort of popular writers of the year to come back and, and do a reading. And I had a piece on, actually kind of a funny piece on having cancer. And I, I wasn't going to read it, but in the last minute I thought, well, you've got a full auditorium here, take out for a ride. And at the end of it, it was absolutely quiet. I know how to do readings. And uh, it was kind of a funny piece. And then it seemed like six hours before anybody responded, I mean, then it was just tumultuous. It was, it was. I got a standing ovation, and uh, and the audience was a dramaturg for Salt Lake Acting Company, who I'd done some work with, and he said, "Do you think this? You think you could turn this into a play? And if so, I commission you right now." And I agreed, and I ended up writing a really a play that's about as much a comedy about cancer, about the medical situation as it is about the seriousness of it. It's called The Slight Discomfort. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are hearing some excerpts from several interviews I was privileged to do with uh, the writer Jeff Metcalf. We're honoring him today, remembering him. Uh, He died uh, this uh, summer. Uh, We turn next uh, to uh, my last interview with uh, Jeff Metcalf on the occasion of publication in 2019 of his last book, a novel, Wacko City of Fun Carnival. The protagonist, Hubert Walker, uh, grows up in Salt Lake City, runs away to Wyoming to join Wacko City of Fun Carnival. The publisher asks, you might ask where this story comes from. Well, while this is written as a novel, many, if not all, of these events actually transpired. So we'll talk with Jeff uh, Metcalf about this. We'll hear a couple of experiences from his life and then uh, how the protagonist, Hubert, uh, got into the carnival. Uh, So apparently, Cary Grant uh, drove you home one time? Well, actually, it was Clark Gable. Was it Clark Gable? Yeah, Clark Gable was in in Holland. We were living there at the time and staying at this uh, hotel. It was called the Castile, which was actually kind of a castle. And we had lived there when we first moved to Holland. And my mom sent me over to get his autograph. I had no idea who he was. Um, and I just knew he was the guy with the big ears. And he had his son there, uh, adopted son from Kate Spreckles. Uh, and uh, I ended up playing with the kid, and it was it got to be very late, and I knew I had to get home. And Clark Gable actually drove me back to my house, and I, I was going to catch hell from my parents. And when I rang the front doorbell and my mother opened it, she actually fainted when she saw <laughs> Clark Gable. And my mom was a New Yorker that was very pushy and tough and, you know, Here's Clark Gable standing there. I still had no idea who he was, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, I've told that story. It, Tom, it's interesting because I, I've told that story to my wife for years. And then about 15 years ago, when we moved 
from a house out in the south end of the valley close to the university, I found the signature from his desk. It was from the desk of Clark Gable. And I said, look. And she said, okay, I will never doubt you again. Because <laughs> I've had just this remarkable life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one more anecdote. Um, you um, chaperoned a couple of high school journalists to an interview uh, given by a death row inmate. Absolutely. John Albert Taylor, we got the only, it was a, uh, our high school newspaper uh, at Valley High School, we got the only interview with John Albert Taylor before he was uh, executed, uh, and he granted us an interview uh, because <clears throat> he felt like he understood the kids that went to the school. So we went into death row, which was a terrifying experience, and interviewed him, and it became kind of an international story. Mm. Uh, so, um, Waco's City of Fun uh, Carnival, um, you're, you're saying this is m- mostly, if not all, your experiences? Why a novel? I'll tell you what. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Ron Carlson, who I think is one of the country's uh, finest humorists. What he says, everything I write about is true, even the stuff I make up. <laughs> so, um, I ran away from home. Uh, and it sounds it's really interesting, because when I was writing this book, I would give my wife sections to read, you know, and I've been married. It depends on who you ask. Alana's always a year off one way or the other, but we'll have been married 37 years this January. And she'd read it and she'd say, did this really happen to you? You've never told me this part. Well, you don't have to say much when you tell people you join a carnival. It's like, yeah, I did. I ran away and joined a carnival, and people go, oh, my Uncle Frank was going to do that. And when I was growing up, I thought about running away and joining a carnival. And you pretty much let them take care of the conversation. So a lot of the the dark sort of stuff, I really didn't have to talk about and didn't. But I would say that, yes, let me just say this, that a great deal of it is based on my own experience. Um, but it's like a poker hand. I'm not going to tell you because the stuff that you think <laughs> probably isn't true is true, and the stuff that you think is true probably isn't true. Mm. So, um, but it was nice to put it in the world. Uh, I've wanted to write this book for the longest time, and when I started it, um, it was so much fun to go back and fall in love to be a 15 year old, try to find that 15 and a half year old voice, and fall in love again. You know, and be in love at 15 and a half with an old woman, an older woman, a mysterious older woman who was almost 19. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> that kind of love is special. So the main character, is, is it Hube, for short for Hubert? Hub. Hub, Hub. Oh, Hub, okay. Short um, for Hubert. So, Hub. so Hub, okay. Um, so how did, how did Hub come to be in the carnival? Well, a couple things. That the first chapter of the novel is is like I think two paragraphs long, and it talks about a sequence of events that were like this chain reaction. Um, there was a, a a beer store actually. I mean, in the real world, it was beer, but there was this gas um, gas and go here that there was kind of a compact that if you wanted to buy, you were underage and wanted to buy beer, you go in and slide it under your jacket and go up to the front and tell the the owner what you had and he'd charge you and you'd buy a pack of gum and pay for the beer and the gum. Well, so Hub, or me in this case, uh, went up and they had changed owners and this guy pulled off a sh- uh, pulled out a sawed-off shotgun and told me I could drink it in jail. So that set in motion 
you know, a series of events uh, which led to me, uh, or I'm going to say hub from now on mm-hmm. so I don't get it mixed up, being in trouble with the law and having to run away. And that's essentially what happened. He was afraid he'd end up in state school, a juvenile, you know, detention center. So he took off, uh, and it was a seriously silly mistake, but all the pieces added up to a perfect storm, so that set him in motion. It took off in a cop car. Yeah, yeah, and let's say, <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. Okay. <laughs> um, but it sure moved fast. <laughs> right, right, exactly. That's uh, another excerpt from uh, one of my several interviews I was privileged to have with the, the writer Jeff Metcalf, who uh, passed away uh, this summer. And uh, on the program today, we remembered him, uh, honored him. Uh, Jeff Metcalf um, was unfailingly warm, witty, open, funny, and profound. His books include Requiem for the Living, Backcast, and Wacko's City of Fun Carnival. He was also the author of Place A Slight Discomfort. You can find out more about him at his website, wjmetcalf.com. I'm uh, very glad that I was privileged to, uh, to, to know, at least through the radio, Jeff Metcalf. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk with Bill Shapiro. Um, he writes recently in the New York Times. He says, we're all drowning in our own pictures. Some, he says, I flip too often. And then there are the photos I reach for with intention a couple times a year when I find myself needing to look at life with different eyes. And uh, these are other people's photos. We'll talk about that on the program today. Thanks for listening. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And the Herald Journal, your in-depth source of local Cache Valley news. Delivering local, state, and national news directly to your home. Offering online and U.S. mail newspaper delivery. Information at hjnews.com or at 752-2121. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.